HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. And we are continuing our discussion on Harvesting Opportunities, a conference put on by American Farmland Trust this coming November 4th. We are joined on the line by John McDowell. John is the president of the Rockland Farm Alliance. John, welcome to the show. Nice to be with you. So tell me, how did you get involved with the Farm Alliance? Well, I'll try to make this story as short as possible. I um, first will say that I'm from Illinois. I grew up around farms, uh, although I'm a composer and musician. My wife and I uh, both ended up in Rockland and in the 90s, and just around 2003, we started the first CSA in Rockland County and Community Supported Ag- Agriculture. Um, and what I discovered was that the mindset <clears throat> was either that farming is dead or, uh, you know, farming is just there's, there's no future for farming, et cetera. So, but the fact was that many people still remember the farms and still there were some farms still left. And I felt like no, no one was really watching the ball. And, um, of course, we've this is part of... What the conference is about is, at least on my track, is uh, the idea that farms don't have to be way off in the country. You know, they can be closer to metropolitan areas. And so there's all kinds of policy work we did, and I'll, uh, you know, just it goes on and on. We've had grassroots meetings and um, got the Farmland Protection Board of the county back together. So it really was uh, something that. It was an idea of its time, you know. As you, as you know, this is, people were not really geared up and excited about farming, local farming, um, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. So um, it was a perfect timing for this to happen. 
So, yeah, the, the title of your panel is Farming in the City and the Country, Land, Economics, and Public Benefits. Um, so, so tell me, you know, one of the, the challenges I see to farming in a, a less remote area or in a more urban environment is, my guess is you probably have to do a slightly different type of farming. You're not going to be running giant combines through town. So how do you um, see it as, like, what's the, is there a right type of farming for these type of spaces? Well, right. Uh, we actually do drive tractors down Main Street, but we just, you know, I'm just kind of joking because we, it's, it is congested. But, uh, the, you know, we're, we are in this in-between area. Like, this word is not really kept, caught on, but peri-urban. So a lot of Rockland is still rural, but a lot of it is uh, developed and kind of suburban-like. But it's an old county, like, you know, everything's old, but, it, but as far as the history of America. So there are the roots of a lot of farms. So to get to your question, uh, we, we looked at what land was still available, what farms were still available, and what we happened upon was that the municipalities, whether they're count, the county itself, county government, or towns or villages had open space that was protected and saved, but no one was thinking that they would go back into farmland, which, of course, it once was. There used to be 900 farms here, and it got down to about four right around the time we started. So Wait, wait, wait. So 900 farms to four farms. Over kind of what time period are we talking about? Uh, 1930s till ni- uh, just 2001, 2002. Wow. That's and now crazy. we've gotten back up to 10, which we're really proud of and happy about. Um, we've we created four farms, and then I think I would... I won't take credit for all of them, but I think that the mood of enthusiasm and support and we can do it sort of um, was infectious and people decided to go ahead and and farm, whether they were on existing farmland or they could lease properties. And I'll just say that uh, what we really, what I was starting to say before is that we have it upon this fact that these towns have open space. So we've, organize these no-cost licenses or leases with municipalities. So it's a great kind of win-win situation where the municipalities don't have to maintain the land. Um, They didn't know quite what to do with it. Usually they just let it go back from fields to scrub to, you know, to little woods, and which is fine, but they were farms, and so we came along and said, let's keep this land farmed. So um, the big farm that we have now is Cropsey Farm, Cropsey Community Farm, and it's a 250-member PSA. And now the county is offering us more land, and also the Clarkstown, for example, has just offered us, well, we just signed a license with a, a 10-acre piece. So that's, that's of course, with farming, that's the huge, uh, well, hurdle is, is land, is access to land, and then, of course, buildings. And and most of these properties not only have land, but some buildings. So that's, that was really a great way to get moving and on this. Yeah, one of the things we talked about when we had uh, David Haydon, the New York State Director of American Farmland Trust, was talking about uh, you know land ownership versus leasing and setting farmers up for success as far as investing in the infrastructure for their property um, and in the soil on their property have you guys um, been able to negotiate more 
long-term lease and arrangements when you're working with municipal property to make sure that, you know, as people get onto this land and work it and develop it, that they're going to be secure in the long term? Right. And it's a good question. It's a really good point. We do as much as we go as far as we can with yeah. the licenses. You know, some are longer than others. But, you, you know, you do have a situation where some developer would say, well, you can have this land for a, a year, and, you know, they just don't get it, that how much, you know, not only labor, but but expense of fencing and equipment it, it takes. And uh, it, it takes a lot of work to move, to move from one farm to another. It's not, you know, we're not just doing hay. And as, as you asked earlier, it is mostly... Uh, vegetable production with some fruit, so it's it. You know, you're setting up beds. You're working with this. You know, at least our methods of organic farming is to really work, improve the soil and all those things. So uh, we get we we get the less leases, the licenses uh, to go as long as we can. But my other philosophy is kind of build it and make it so beautiful that no one will ever want to change it. You know, and I think originally some of this land they thought would be put into a park or a soccer field. And we have plenty of parks in Rockland, which is you'll have just a couple people, like somebody walking their dog or something now. I mean, kids are, it's you know, unfortunately, inside much more than they used to be. And, of course, that's one thing we're, we're working on, getting so many school groups and kids to the farm. So, yeah, just a long answer to say we, we go as long as we can with the licenses. And, and, and like I said, build it, make it beautiful, and there's so much enthusiasm from the community that it would, there would be really outrage if uh, the next mayor or supervisor would want to change something. And the other thing I'll add quickly is that we do also farm private property. So that's, uh, we have, you know, try to get long-term licenses or leases with, with pri- private uh, landowners. Yeah, well, I mean, it is definitely a, a education process, and I love that strategy of just make it so nice that no one will even consider changing it. Well, I know that we are tight on time. I did want to just wind down with one final question. You are, um, you know, an award-winning musician and composer, and I'm wondering if you could share with us how your work as a musician um, relates to your work as a farmer and an agrarian. Oh, well, it's it's mentioned so much, and I, it's hard to answer that. But I that somehow they really they really relate. I think it's you know if you look at the you know the many tools you need or, or attributes to, to compose or play music or be a farmer. There's a lot of creativity and imagination and improvisational uh, aspects as well. Um, there's something so related connected with with the land and music, I would say, and, you know, creativity. So I, I, I remember the day I was sitting at the piano um, looking outside at our land and thinking, I've been sitting in this chair for 40 years, like practicing every day. And uh, even, of course, I would go outside and take walks and things, but I, th- I'm, I just want to go, we're going to put this land into production and make a beautiful farm. So we actually have a group called Music for Farms, and so that's we sometimes tour and go to farms and uh, raise money for benefits and that sort of thing as well. So, so lots of different ways that they're overlapping. Well, John, thank you yeah. so much for taking some time. Um, if folks want to find out more about the Rockland Farm Alliance, they can find you at www.rocklandfarm.org. And can we sign up for CSA shares for the next season? Uh, we're... St- just starting that, in, I think the beginning of um, 
I believe December first. We can we are doing that, but you're welcome. People are welcome to send an email, ask questions. We're we're streamlining everything. You know, it's it's a it's a great system, but it's you know it takes sort of kind of ownership from people to really understand it and and work it out. We we have had shares going to the city. We didn't do it last year because we, it was so popular here. But who knows? We may go again into the city. We'll see. So yeah, please have everybody stay in touch and. Let's work together on this. It's a it's a big uh, venture that's going across the whole country, and I think our model is well, could work anywhere in the in the country. Awesome, so John. Great to, great to talk to you too. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It was, it was enjoyable. Thank you. Yeah, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be on the line with Walt Kiernan, um, a dairy farmer um, up in the Hudson Valley, to learn a little bit more about what you'll be expecting from him at the Harvesting Opportunities Conference coming up this November 4th in Albany, New York. Hang tight. We will be right back. Won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie just for me, girl? Please don't give none away. Let it get sweeter by the day. Oh, won't you save it, baby? Won't you save it? Oh, won't you save it all for me? You're listening to Pumpkin Pie by the California Honey Drops. Save all your cherry jam. Oh, won't you save all your cherry jam? Oh, won't you save all your cherry jam just for me, girl? Please don't give none away. Let it get sweeter by the day. Oh, won't you save it, baby? Won't you save it? Oh, won't you save it all for me? It's apple picking season. Join EscapeMaker.com and the New York Apple Association at the Union Square Green Market, Friday, September 18th and Friday, October 16th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. for the 2015 Apple Palooza Games. Go to the EscapeMaker.com pop-up booth for all your regional agritourism information and a chance to play apple-themed games like Giant Apple Themed Twister. You could win a bag of delicious apple cider donuts and fresh apple juice. Everyone will receive helpful information on where to go for pick your own apples this harvest season and a fresh apple grown in New York State. There's no better time to explore outside the city, soak up the fresh air and scenery like a butterfly, and support your local orchard. Log on to escapemaker.com to get inspired and make your escape through the net. Hi, how are you? My name is Andrew WK. They say when things are very delicious, it must be Heritage Radio. Okay, and we are back. You, of course, are tuned into the Heritage Radio Network, listening to the Farm Report. And in the second half of the show, we are joined on the line by Jerry Cosgrove to continue our conversation on harvesting opportunities in New York, conference put on by the American Farmland Trust up in Albany this November 4th. Jerry, welcome to the show. Well, glad to be here. So you are... um, taking part in a panel that's entitled Investing in Helping Farmers Find a Farm. Um, so I, I guess we should start a little bit with your background. I mean, you actually come from a farming background. You grew up on a dairy farm up in Clinton, New York. And one of the stories I love so much from your bio 
is uh, talking about showing your brother's cow at the International Dairy Show in Wisconsin. Um, it says in your bio that you were more nervous that night than any other time in my life. So why were you so nervous? Well, if you're a Holstein enthusiast, uh, showing in Madison at the International Dairy Expo is the pinnacle of cattle showing. And uh, it was something I'd done growing up, uh, and uh, my brother allowed me to lead his prized cow, and I felt there was a lot riding on it. Um, so it was, uh, it was a fun experience, uh, but it was uh, not quite rational how nervous I was, but I was. <laughs> well, I, my big question was, why wasn't your brother showing his prized cow? Why did he well, pick you? Two, re- two yeah. reasons. One, I think um, he knew it meant a lot to me to do it. Uh, and two, I don't think he would admit this, but I'm a better leads person. <laughs> so, um, you know, you you left the farm to pursue a degree in agriculture from uh, Cornell, and, and then you went on to pursue a law degree. Why the transition um, from agriculture to law? What prompted that? Yeah, well, interestingly, what I actually between. Um, getting my ag degree in law school, I farmed in partnership with my father and brother uh, on the dairy farm. And candidly, I realized that the 24-7 routine of a dairy farm, uh, you know, wasn't <laughs> uh, physically sustainable for me. Um, but I, as I looked uh, for other opportunities, I, I uh, naturally, uh, from having grown up, being interested in history and politics, thought about law school, and um, it wasn't really till after I finished law school that I was able to find sort of the right combination, what I always call my sweet spot, uh, at the intersection of agriculture, law, and conservation. Um, and so it, for me, it's been, you know, a great opportunity to be able to combine both my agricultural experience and, and legal expertise uh, to help farmers uh, and help conserve farmland and provide access to land and uh, uh, and transfer farms to the next generation of critical issues. Yeah, so now you run Jerry Cosgrove Consulting Services, and over your uh, you know 30-year career, you've worked with a variety of organizations in, in a, a variety of roles here in New York State, um, you know, everything from private capital development to farm estate planning, and I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of a, a snapshot from where you sit at, at how we're doing now. Um, do you feel like we're in an optimistic space as it relates to keeper, keeping farmers on farmland and finding farms? Or are, are you worried? What's the level of kind of urgency and feelings around that? Well, I, I think overall I'm, I'm optimistic and hopeful. Uh, and I'm that way by nature. But... I do think that in the last um, 10 to 15 years, there has been a a really significant and critical increased awareness from the general public about the importance of where their food comes from, making the connection between uh, food and farms and farmers and farmland. Uh, So I'm, I'm encouraged. I mean, there are a lot of challenges that remain. Agriculture is a tough, tough business. The margins are thin. It's high risk. You're at the mercy of Mother Nature. Um, you know, in 
New York State, and in particular in the Hudson Valley, we've got uh, intense land development pressures. Um, uh, we've also got competition for land from non-farm buyers that drive the price up beyond the reach of what farmers can afford to pay for it. And, and I really feel strongly, having come from a family farm, that um, having access to land and being able to own it or at least have the equivalent of ownership uh, is really critical for farmers. People uh, who haven't been really closely connected to the land don't fully appreciate how significant and how strong that desire is on the part of farmers large and small, to own their land, own the land that they farm. Um, it really does impact uh, how they see it, and, it, and it's very important to them and, and a strong driver uh, for why they work so hard uh, at what they do. Well, so we have been uh, you know, chatting with some other folks who are going to be up at the conference about the importance of this idea of ownership, or I like the way you put it, equivalent of ownership. And I'm assuming what you mean there is kind of long-term lease arrangements? Is there something else that would be included in that equivalent of ownership space? You know, I think long-term leases, if they're structured correctly, I mean, one of the challenges with most leases, and this is going to be, I'm sure, a, a significant topic of conversation at the conference and certainly in our session, is that, you know, when most people talk about a long-term lease, it's maybe five or ten years. But I think in agriculture... You really need to think generationally. You know, farmers have careers of 20 or 30 years. I mean, that's the time horizon that they think about their land. And in fact, in many cases, farmers will make improvements knowing that they won't live to see the benefits of them. They'll plant trees. They'll plant, you know, um, sugar bushes. They'll make improvements in the land that there won't be a short-term payback, but they know it's the right thing to do. So I... We really have to extend the notion of long-term uh, when we're thinking about leases. And, and, again, I think there's a growing interest and willingness to think about how to do that. So kind of on that note, because I know you do work uh, um, around farm estate planning, when we, again, are thinking about, like, access to land and land value, if I'm a, you know, a farmer, someone who's worked in agriculture for my whole life, and I'm ready to retire, and the most kind of valuable asset I have is, is my land and the infrastructure on it, um, but I want to ensure that that stays in farmland. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the challenges that come up in that space when you're looking to fund uh, a retirement and also protect this thing that you've invested in? Um, what are some of the directions that people go to, um, to, to support a retirement and to not to not, you know, remove the land from agriculture and farming? Well, let me first say that you put your finger on one of what I would consider one of the largest challenges in the farm uh, transfer area. The fact is that, you know, it's, it's not a, an exaggeration to say that in most cases the farmer's land is her, his or her retirement. And so one of the challenges with that is that you know, it's a very valuable asset. Uh, in some cases, it may have a value beyond money uh, that the farmer then needs to figure out how to use to support his or her retirement without liquidating the asset at its highest value, which 
again, sadly, in many cases, is for something other than farming. That's just the way our market real estate system is set up. Right. So it creates a dilemma. And I think um, historically, I think in family situations, many times the, the retiring generation would consciously um, gift much of the appreciated value to the next generation. They would, they would essentially transfer, sell or give the land at very close to its agricultural value. Um, and, and that works in some contexts, but in other areas where you've got a farmer who's retiring and doesn't have uh, the next generation in place, or perhaps has significant retirement income needs and they can't afford to make a gift even to their own family. Mm-hmm. Then the challenge is to find a way um, to generate liquidity, you know, translated means cash, uh, so that the farmer can do both. And this is where we're, I think, very fortunate in New York State to have, uh, thankfully now under the Cuomo administration, a very well-funded purchase of conservation easement or purchase of development rights program, which will compensate the farmers for that spread in value between its agricultural value and what you know a real estate developer would pay for it on the open market. And and that those funds um, help the farmer uh, to retire. They make the farm more affordable and they conserve the farm. So it's a win win win. Uh, and again, especially in the Hudson Valley, I can tell you that Probably all of the clients that I'm currently working with in farm transfer scenarios, and these are within families and it's a couple of situations where it's not among families, are being facilitated by the sale of development rights because it creates this funding source so that the retiring farmers can retire and the younger farmers can afford to buy the farm at closer to an agricultural value. So it's a really, really important tool, I think, uh, it was unfortunate that, uh, you know, the program kind of went into hiatus between um, the Patterson and Cuomo administrations. But again, I think folks are all pleased uh, that the Cuomo administration has uh, begun, you know, re- making new requests for proposals. And certainly there's, uh, you know, hopes that there will be a, a request for proposals imminently focused on the Hudson Valley with some of the um, bank settlement funding, uh, which will again, create tremendous opportunities to conserve land, uh, to transfer farms, uh, and to make them all affordable, more affordable. Well, yeah, and I I do feel like, you know, we were speaking with uh, John McDowell from the Rockland Farm Alliance uh, earlier in the program, and I was uh, surprised to learn that in his region, um, you know, the number of farms had gone from somewhere, he said, in the, the 900 range in the 1930s, to around five in 2007, and they've been able to like bring that number back up to 10 here in 2015. But the change in this space in both like the number, in the number of farms, I feel like it happens really fast. So I do feel like there is um, an increasing sense of urgency, uh, in particular when you're looking at different um, government um, kind of runs, like. I don't, to, my, to me, I'm like we can't really afford to to miss these opportunities in these in you know in between administrations because 
there's chunks of farmers who are retiring and needing to retire all the time. So it's really, there needs to be at a grassroots level, more pressure, it seems to me, put on uh, people who are in decision-making spaces to, to fund these type of programs because no one is, you know, tearing down uh, housing projects and strip malls to build farms, or is that happening somewhere that I don't know about? Uh, not that I know of, and I couldn't agree more that I think um, there needs to be consistent, regular funding. Uh, the demand always exceeds the available funds. Again, it's, it's a great tool. Uh, it's one that's effective and, and fair to the landowner. Again, you know, landowners, this is their equity, so simply taking it away from them is not fair nor feasible. Right. So you've got to provide compensation. And again, the source of that, we've got great partners in the philanthropic uh, private funding community, but at the end of the day, it's a significant uh, public benefit, and so there should be a significant public investment. And, you know, again, I'm sure that the advocates, uh, including those folks at uh, my former organization, American Farmland Trust, and, and I and in this group, uh, you know, want to advocate for significantly increased funding moving forward because you're right. It, it's uh, the, the time is now, the need is there, there's an opportunity um, to secure this land before, you know, it gets developed in a, in a wasteful fashion. You know, there's lots of land that could be developed or especially in urban areas redeveloped. Mm-hmm. We need to stop wasting the land with large lot development, McMansions in the middle of productive fields. I mean, we, we've all seen them. And if you're a farmer, you know, it really makes you want to throw up. Yeah, I... Um, because you, you see the big house with the big lawn in the middle of a big field that's essentially worse than a condo development. Because some of these big McMansions, they'll, they'll eat up 10, 15 acres at a time. And, I mean, talk about a waste of land. Um, so we, we've got, you know, as you observe, there's a lot of work to do, uh, and we, sh- we need to stay with it and, and keep the focus and the pressure on. I'm wondering if there is um, another space that it might be helpful for our listeners to, to draw a comparison. When we think about, because uh, I, f- I feel like pushback I get sometimes from folks is like, well, you know, the, the market forces will determine things and, you know, we shouldn't be spending, you know, public money to support individual farmers. And I think what's missing in that kind of line of analysis is all the spaces that we are consistently um, as a country through our public policy, deciding what things we kind of value and invest in and, and support and I'm wondering if there is a parallel that jumps to the forefront of your mind of other areas where we have we have said from a policy perspective we're like we're going to support or undergird this um, sector of the economy or this type of development because it's important to our national identity. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a couple of levels. There's the notion of um, you know securing and maintaining. You know, a good food supply. Uh, there's the concept which many uh, in the planning community have really drawn, you know, likening uh, farmland uh, to, to part of the green infrastructure. You know, again, we we pay for roads and the road improvements because we know we need that 
that's public infrastructure. The fact is that while it's privately managed, our farmlands are really essentially public infrastructure from a food, food production perspective. And one of the advantages of purchasing development rights, purchasing conservation easements, is it's a public investment in keeping the land available to farm. I mean, there's, those programs don't guarantee a profit to farmers. That's a related but separate issue. Right. Uh, what they do is they keep the land available uh, so that the farmers can continue to run their operations and not have to worry about, you know, higher property taxes or development that's inappropriate uh, in pinching their farming operations. And, and frankly, it creates a, a better mechanism and avenue to transfer the land to the next generation when that becomes necessary or appropriate because the development option is taken off the table and with good land it should be um so i think i i agree that the market analogies are really not appropriate i think that folks are being short-sighted if they think about land as a commodity like others it's really not it's really limited not. um there's better land that should be conserved for agriculture um and I think, you know, people need to recognize that this is, this is important for the long-term sustainability uh, of our food production. And, you know, one of the things that I really uh, hammer to the sustainable agriculture community is that they need to understand that the foundation for sustainable agriculture is the land. And you, you can talk all you want about sustainable agricultural practices, but if the land is developed, you never even have that conversation. It's moot. So I, and I think the sustainable ag community is coming around and recognizing that conserving the farmland is really fundamental, basic, and important, and, and, and unfortunately, expensive. Yeah. You know, because we've got a real estate system where there's a non-farm development value. In the Hudson Valley, there's an estate value that... You have to compensate the landowners for that's that's our system. So it's somebody's got to make that investment, be it the government, um, philanthropy, or in some cases the individual landowners themselves. Um, that, you know that there's and we need all of those sources of support. It's not just going to be one or the other uh, carrying it forward. Well, because we are all eaters, you know. Not, absolutely, not, absolutely none of us right. get to yeah, sit I mean, that one that's out. Sort of where I started. <laughs> you know, I am encouraged that more and more people are getting that, and they they start to understand the you know the, the link between the farmland, the farming, the farmer, and the food. Um, I had you know this is kind of jumping back to a little bit earlier when we were talking about retirement, but. We do hear a lot about, um, you know, an increasing percentage of America's farmers are going to be retiring over the course of the next, you know, decade. And, and the, you know, the percentages and the time frame shifts and changes a little bit. But I'm I'm kind of curious about retirement more generally. Um, you know, I feel like as lifespans are, are getting longer and... Um, people are living, you know, people are just actually living much longer. Is there a culture, like, what is the retirement culture in agriculture? You know, I mean, do we, like, look hard and fast at that 65 kind of cutoff, or is, 
is it something that you know is more of a sloping removal or or I guess I'm just from like a quantitative standpoint like is retirement for farmers inherently different um, from like an age and workforce perspective than for you know other um, occupations if you know I, I think I think fundamentally yes and there's really two elements um, and I think they're they need to be thought about separately there's the work the work of farming and and and, and I'll use my father as an example. He loved farming. And when he, quote, retired, he still worked 40 to 50 hours a week for my brother. Because he, there was nothing he'd rather do. He liked golf. He liked travel. But he loved farming, and he kept doing it. So many farmers, if they're physically able, will keep farming as long as they can. And, and in many families, what you see is the senior generation ends up working for the younger generation. It's, and it's a great, I mean, as my brother said, my father was always his best employee. You know, he, I mean, he knew, you know, he had 50 years of farming experience. So, so I think with the work, I think that is different because they love their work. Where I think there's a bigger challenge, candidly, is in the asset transfer area. Because the assets by and large, especially the land, are significant uh, and have appreciated over decades. There's a lot of uh, sort of locked-up value that potentially, if there's a sale, triggers significant capital gains taxes. And that's a, that's a huge deterrent. It's a financial deterrent for farmers to transfer those assets to the next generation. And, and that's, a, that's a tax policy issue that I strongly believe that we need to address because, and I won't get into the, the weeds here, but suffice to say that our current system, um, create, in my opinion, creates a disincentive for farmers to transfer their assets before they die. And I think there's something fundamentally wrong with that. I would not disagree. Um, well, unfortunately, Jerry, we are out of time, but uh, it's been really interesting. I hope that you will join us uh, again on the program soon. We'd love to. Um, we can, you know, next time we can talk about, uh, you know, tax issues. <laughs> I, you know, I feel funny saying this, but I really look forward to that. <laughs> Good. Um, Me too. For folks who want to find out uh, more about you and your work, they can check you out at Jerry Cosgrove. Dot net, or they can find you up in Albany on November 4th for the Harvesting Opportunity. Absolutely. I'll be there. and look forward to it. It's going to be a great day, so I hope, folks, uh, there's going to be a lot to learn. Awesome. Thank you so much for tuning in right. and joining us today, Jerry. Um, folks, you have made your way through another episode of The Farm Report. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you like what you hear, please find us on iTunes. Uh, leave us a review. Shoot us uh, thoughts and suggestions. I tweet at Aaron underscore Fairbanks. Um, of course, we are a member-supported nonprofit organization. I uh, would love to see you in our member roles. Visit us at www.heritageradionetwork.org. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in.
listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.